the Lord and His anointed in today's part two. And I'd like for you to turn with me. I'd like to read the chapter with you, uh, along with us looking at it together. Chapter two of Psalm. Wonderful chapter. Don't you love these Psalms? 150 they are. The Psalter. Spirit inspired. God breathed. All sufficient. Inspired. Infallible. Word of the living God. Psalm chapter 2, verse, beginning of verse 1 through 12. Why do the heathen rage? And why the people and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish from the way, when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. Oh, let's bow in prayer to our wonderful God. Thank Him for this Word that's come on a sea of of blood. Thank Thank God today that we have it in our own language. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our Father, our God, Lord, as we approach Your eternal throne by faith, we realize, oh, Lord, that no worship will be acceptable unto Thee, oh, God, unless it's through Your blessed Son, Your only begotten Son, You said, kiss the Son. That's worship. The Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what heaven does right now. Is worshiping the Son. Worshiping the Father. The Spirit. Three in one. Father, we thank You through the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can come right into Your holy presence. Oh God, we do not look at this lightly. Matter of fact, we come with fear and trembling. And we tread the courts lightly. So Father, we come and we come by faith and we look to Christ alone this morning. He is our mediator, He's our redeemer and our great high priest. And Lord, we ask, Lord, through His name and through the Holy Spirit to sanctify us and through Your Word, wash us and purge us so that our worship would be pleasing to You, O God, this morning. We pray that Your name to be hallowed, Lord, through the preached Word, 
Thank you that this holy word has come to us in our language this morning. And we realize, O oh God, that all is vain unless your blessed Holy Spirit comes and shows us Christ. O oh God, show us Jesus Christ and Him crucified, buried and resurrected. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. So Lord, we plead with You to open our eyes that we only see Jesus. That's our prayer. Give us ears to hear Jesus. Open our understanding to know Jesus. And as David prayed, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in Thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. And we ask all this for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. This is a wonderful and glorious psalm, is it not? Psalm 2 is one of those great messianic psalms and it's written by David. Uh, first of all, I'd like to open up by just mentioning to you a little bit about the importance of a messianic psalm and then we're going to go right and pick up right where we started, uh, left off. But I believe it's important that we understand uh, about a messianic psalm. The first way of finding out and knowing that a psalm is a messianic psalm, and not all the psalms are messianic. Now, all the roads will eventually lead to Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I can assure you that. Spurgeon said that. But the messianic psalms are special prophetic psalms on the Lord Jesus Christ. The first way is of understanding three methods of knowing that a psalm is a messianic psalm is, number one, by the testimony of the writers of the Old Testament. The testimony of the writers of the Old Testament. The prophets that spoke and prophesied under the Spirit of God, prophesied of Jesus Christ, the Anointed One. Christ being the Anointed One. So it's the testimony of the Old Testament writers. That's the first one. And there's a few occurrences of these. We find them in particular in Psalms found in other books which attribute to them to a discussion on the Messiah specifically. Secondly, is that there are references in the New Testament, not only the Old Testament testifies, but the New Testament to these Psalms, these Messianic Psalms, either by Christ Himself that spoke of Himself, referring to Him, because he spoke of David many times. David, he quotes the psalm and he quotes Deuteronomy and he quotes many, many scriptures. You see this constantly. But Christ himself and the writers and who made note to them as pertaining to Jesus Christ. For example, Psalm 2 is no doubt quoted as we looked at last Lord's Day in prayer by the early apostolic church as they were praying and Chapter 4 of the book of Acts, Luke records this for us. And uh, uh, it basically says that through verse 24 through verse 26, as they were praying, that this psalm is a messianic psalm and it's written by the servant, by the mouth of thy servant David. That's what they said in prayer. So even though there's no title of the author, David is the writer. Now, and it could be also that Psalm 1 and 2 are inseparable. They could be linked together like a chain. 
Psalm 1 is introduced in chapter 1, verse 1. If you, as you see it, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of ungodly. And if you notice in the closing of Psalm 2, it ends, blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. So it begins with a blessing and ends with a blessing. So it's a good possibility these, these two psalm are, psalms are connected together. Kind of like uh, Psalm... Uh, 42 and 43. It's almost like a connection. We have the chapters and the verses to divide it and things, but originally when it was written, it was a flow of thought. And then there are times of pauses and separations, but Psalm 1 and 2 possibly could go together. But nevertheless, this uh, wonderful Psalm 2 is a um, messianic Psalm. The third, the third thing is the method is that there is a testimony by the Jews, Jewish believers, and the church itself denoting that these psalms refer to the Messiah. Let me say that again, that there is a testimony. The testimony is very important. And from the church, the early church, denoting that these psalms refer to the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. So we can ask these, those three questions. So while we're reading all the Messianic, whatever psalm you come to, the Messianic Psalm, to see if it's truly Messianic. Number one, do the other Old Testament writers give testimony to the Messiah? Do they give testimony to the Messiah? And number two, do the New Testament writers refer to these Psalms in reference to the Messiah? And third, do the Jewish believers in the church refer to Christ Jesus as the Messiah? And in reading Psalm 2, if we ask these questions... um, we can answer each one of those questions with an emphatically absolute yea and amen. It fits perfectly of who Jesus is. So we do know even though under the Spirit of God, David is addressing his time, you see many Psalms, many Scriptures like this, there's, a, there's the prophecy that leads directly to Jesus Christ. You had the Davidic covenant, David is king, but we know who the great king is. Under it, it being his seed, that it leads to Jesus Christ. And actually, if we read the Bible, as we know, after Jesus' resurrection in Luke, Jesus spoke to the disciples on the road of Emmaus, and he opened up the scriptures. Wouldn't you like to have heard that? And he expounded to them on the scriptures of all the verses and the chapters, and it even speaks of the Psalms. He went to those scriptures and, and he spoke of himself and, and afterwards the, they testified, did not our hearts burn within us? Beloved, that's what I desire, don't you? I want my heart to burn this morning by hearing this word. And then when we leave out of here, we burn for Jesus Christ and we burn so much that people see a burning, shining light in us to make a difference in this old dark world. Because I tell you, I tell you as, well, as you well know, this old dark world needs to have a burning, shining light. And it's here. It's right here. The Word of God. So yes, emphatically, yes and amen, this is a Messianic Psalm. Therefore, when we come to the Messianic Psalm, we see the people here in Psalm 2 raging against the Lord and His anointed, and we see God's determined purpose to exalt His Son... And in the end, he's going to reign forever and ever. Now, we got something to look forward to, don't we?
Jesus will triumph. He's already triumphed, but in the end, when He comes back, all the enemies will be laid waste. Now, as we read this, with the eye of faith, as Spurgeon said, watch the final triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ over all His enemies. (laughs) And as we read this wonderful psalm and study it and look at it together, we also, with an attitude of fear and trembling, this is a great... Another truth from the Word of God that I would like to set before you this morning to help us view this psalm right. And that is this one truth here that, and I didn't think about this until I was studying. I said, you know, this, so many people, and all of us needs to be very careful when we read the Word of God, we need to make sure we pray over it and we ask the Spirit of God to show us something that we're missing. And I thought about 1 Samuel chapter 16. Verse 7b, you're familiar with this verse, and it's one that we quote quite often, but I like to tie it in to Psalm 2 as we look into these verses this morning. And the scripture says here, the Lord does not see as man sees. The Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And matter of fact, if you go to Revelation, it says, Jesus Christ is the searcher of hearts. He searches the reins of our hearts. None other than Christ Himself through the blessed Spirit of God can search in the deep recesses of our soul and our hearts. So i like to set that before you as we go through this psalm because a lot of times we read a psalm and we say we miss something, but the Lord does not see as man sees. Hallelujah for that. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So the psalmist, who is David, as we well know, that's, that, that's given to us from Acts chapter 4, verse 24 through 26. We know that. He's the writer. Psalm 2 gives us a unique perspective of viewing God. And God is sitting on His throne. And He's high and lifted up, as Isaiah saw Him. He's high and lifted up looking down upon the kingdoms of this world, like the Scripture says, that heaven is His throne and earth is His footstool. And the question we need to ask here is, what does God see? That's the question. What does God see? What does God see? God sees the kings of the earth setting themselves against Himself, against God, and His anointed, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what God sees. God's angry with the wicked every day. I like what John MacArthur says. Put that on the church sign. You know, you see all these little cute sayings on church signs, and I saw one on Valentine's Day, be mine slash God. Now, that really made me sick. They're adding to the Word of God. God never said that. You see what I'm saying? Don't say something that God never said. But if it's in these 66 books... Right here, compiled is the Bible. And if you were to put something, I mean, line by line and precept by precept, and I love when churches do that on a sign. They they put a scripture, I said, now that has power to it. That strikes my heart. That strikes my soul. But don't give me these old cute sayings that God never said. See that too often. And it it gives us a hint what's going on. (coughs) It gives us a hint 
Does that church, what is called a church, are they going by the Word of God? Do they live by this Word? Do they preach the Word? Do they love the Word? Do they know the Word? Well, God help us. We need to see things as God sees. So, what does God see? What does God say? He sees here in chapter 2, He sees the vain plotting of men. Trying to shape this world as they would like it. Don't we see that today? But God sees deeper. He sees into the motives of their hearts and why they're doing it. And all that they're plotting is in vain. And we looked at that last week, that there's vain imaginations. Vain. Verse 1. And the people imagine a vain thing. Imagine. The imaginations of people's heart is evil continually. It's deep evil. So we see that. Could this, could this really be the, the sad state of the kings of the earth of our day? That they really would desire to vain plotting shape trying to shape in this world as they would like to in vain imaginations attempting to break the bonds of the one who actually upholds the world by the word of his power would they try to dare usurp God well we see that little man tries to attempt this would the kings of the earth the presidents and whoever it may be do they not want what is best for man Oh, they may get up and say it like a lot of politicians do. They lie and lie just to get in office, to get their way. But do they really, are they concerned for the best of man? We know that's not always the case, do we? Do they actually seek and desire to thwart Almighty God and His rule over them? And do they even believe that Well, do they believe that God exists? Do they believe that there is a God? These are questions. Well, beloved, let me say this. As we see the things right before our very eyes unfolding right now in our present time, how relevant then is this psalm too in the 21st century? How relevant is this psalm? It's very relevant. As a matter of fact, everything in this book... And it's written thousands and thousands of years ago. This is just as relevant and fresh as it was back when it was penned. Amazing thing is that this psalm, which was written thousands of years ago, it's more relevant than ever before. Even in Acts, if you read Acts 4, 24-26, the church, the early believers that came together, and as they were praying, they quoted this, they, quote, they quoted part of it, and that actually they saw the relevance in that day, see, as they crucified the Lord's anointed, Jesus Christ. That's what they said. They quoted it in prayer. Early believers saw that this psalm, they saw this psalm unfolding right before their eyes. And that was 2,000, 2000 years ago. Well, it's just as relevant today as it was then. And it's very relevant. More important in our day than ever. Now, was there ever a time when it was more needful for the rulers of the earth earth today to look to God? But yet, that's not the case, is it? We see judgment about us. 
A lot of people disagree with me. You know, a lot of people says, God bless America. But I'm telling you, God's not going to bless America until, until there's repentance. That is so lightly used. As a matter of fact, a lot of people wouldn't like me saying this, but I see curse. I see a woe about us. I see wicked leaders. And God has given people over to a delusion. Because we understand if we read this book as you see as well as I do that God is sovereign over everything, isn't He? And He allows the wicked rulers to come in. Well, this is very serious. How does God see? He's, you know, actually God sees opposite the way we see things unless we see through the eyes of the blessed Holy Spirit through these Scriptures. And you read through the Old Testament and you see how Israel rebelled against the Lord and how they disobeyed His commandments. And notice that God would always discipline Israel by giving them wicked rulers. And a lot of times, discipline them with a rod, a loving rod, to bring them back to themselves, to God. And He would allow hard things to happen. To wake them up. And then they'd go right back to it. And then you see this. You see this if you read the whole entire Bible. You see this rebellion, obstinance, and, and against the Lord. They forget God. And what does the Scripture say? That the nations that forget God. It's sad. Shall be turned into hell. Be turned into Sheol. God turns them over. Read Romans 1 to a reprobate mind. Well, here we see the, the heathen is raging. Imagine a vain thing. And keep in mind that Psalm 2 was written hundreds of years ago, like I said, before the birth of Christ. God's anointed had not yet appeared on earth. And, and, and we know that by this Bible, Jesus Christ has come, the anointed one, the Messiah has come. And they, what did they do to Him? They crucified Him. They crucified the King of glory. The King in which they rejected. And put Him on a cross. And they buried Him. But oh, beloved, we know on the third day, God raised Him from the dead. And now He's our risen King. He sits in the, He's majestic and He sits in the heavens and at His Father's right side as our high King of glory, our eternal priest, our priest making an intercession for His people, exalted on high, He's reigning. And yet even in our day, the rulers of the earth are, are in an uproar and the nations are devising a, a vain thing and the kings of the earth take their stand again, and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and His anointed. Now, now we pick up, now last Lord's Day, we look at rage and rebellion, right? We see this, rage and rebellion in verses 1 to 3. The heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing. Why? Why? That's the question. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast their cords from us. Well, there you have that is rage and rebellion. Then we looked at the second part of it is derision and decision. Derision and decision in verses 4 through 6. He that sitteth in the heaven shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. And then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. 
And then he says this in verse 6, don't you love this? Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. He is set there. I love that word set. He's not going to be moved. He's set there. God is sitting there. And today I would like the third and fourth points. The third would be Jesus in judgment. Jesus in judgment in verse 7 through 9. And instruction and invitation in verses 10 through 12 as we give application. Let's look at the third point. Verse, uh, verse 7. We see verse 7 through 9. Jesus in judgment. Verse 7 says, In... And the Lord says, I will declare the decree. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. There we have the divine decree. The divine decree. And who is speaking here? With the Lord's anointed. He speaks. The Lord's anointed. We have looked into the wicked counsel of the chamber, have we not? And we looked to the throne of God and God laughs. And now we see the anointing. The anointed one declaring His holy rights. That's what it means. He has holy rights of sovereignty and He gives warning. God has laughed and at the wicked's counsel and raging, and now Christ the anointed comes forward as the risen Redeemer, and He makes a declaration. Don't you love this? There's a declaration that's made. It, it makes me think of what the Apostle Paul said about the Lord Jesus Christ in the opening up of Romans, Romans 1.4. He said, He is declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus is declared to be the Son of God. And was it not the God the Father that said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And here in Psalm 2 verse um, 7, this declaration is made by the Anointed One and is if as Jesus Christ comes forward looking into the raging rebellious kings that are angry with angry faces and hatred against the against the Lord and His anointing, and Jesus Christ is almost said to say, is if this is not enough to make you silent. God through Christ will shut every mouth. Does not Paul say that in Romans? That every mouth will be shut. God will have the last say. Regardless of little man's puny voices and what they rage and what they say. This is humbling. I look at myself in this and I think, it, I need to be on my face and bowing before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the scripture says, every knee's going to bow and every tongue's going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We need to bow now and submit to His Lordship now before it's everlasting too late because one day there's going to come a day even the enemies is going to bow. And that's what he's talking about. So God through Christ will shut the mouth of every person. And the divine, what he's saying here, the divine decree, I will declare the decree. Notice what he says, I will declare it. 
That's a powerful statement. This decree is a direct, con- direct conflict with the little puny men's devices. This decree enlarges on the pledge of adoption, by the way, given to David's heir. If you look at 2 Samuel 7, uh, chapter 7, verse 14, it says this, I will be his father and he shall be my son. Commentator, I was, I was looking and digging in this, and commentator Derek Kidner, I love his comments on this. He says this, The words here may have been spoken as of an oracle by a prophet or read out by the king. I will tell the decree. Usually kings will say that. I will tell the decree. In coronation or a rite, or as the word today suggests, the mark, the moment when the new sovereign formally took up his inheritance and his titles. And the connection of this announcement with the resurrection, which I quoted in Romans 1.4, and also in Acts 13.33, which says, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that He hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. And Kidner goes on to say, and is doubly, a doubly meaningful fulfillment against such a background. To go on to comment, he says, uh, for any earthly king, this form of address could bear only the lightest interpretation, but the New Testament hold, holds us, hold it to the full value which excludes the very angels to leave only one candidate, one candidate in possession. End quote. And who would that be? The Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. How do we know this? How do we know this? There's so many verses that, that this one verse speaks of, but you go to Hebrews 1.5. Go with me there, and I want you to see this. Hebrews 1.5. And I like to read more than just one verse here because the connection is so great and so wonderful. But look at verse 5. And he says, For unto us, uh, for unto which of the angels said, He at any time, speaking of Christ, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee in question. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. You notice he's quoting, he's going back to that verse in Samuel. Okay, and then look at verse 6. I want to read all the way to the end of the chapter 1, but notice the connection here. And again, which he bringeth in the first begotten into the world. Who's he speaking of? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. He saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. All the angels of God worship him. And the angels, he saith, and of the angels, he saith, and he maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Just read that this morning. But unto the Son, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. And a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Speaking of Jesus. And thou, Lord... In the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. They shall perish. They shall perish. But thou remainest, 
And they all shall wax old as doeth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up. And they shall be changed. But thou art the same. And thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool? That's a question. And then he closes chapter 1 here. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? All that pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ as the King of glory. The King of glory. So we see that this is about Jesus. Now, we got back to Psalm 2, verse 7. We see Christ Himself gives His testimony, right? He gives His own testimony. And Christ is the installed mediator. He's the installed mediator. You are my Son. He's a mediator. Here is full proof of the Lord Jesus Christ's glorious divinity. You are my Son. You are my Son. Today I've begotten thee. Now, if, as you think about that, that's really deep. I even had somebody ask me one time in a grocery store, and, and, they, and it, it caused me to really search the Scriptures, and I never thought of it. And this was a person that was seeking truth and seeking she says, I've asked a lot of pastors this and they never could give me a lot of Christians, just not only pastors, but a lot of Christians, the Bible students. She said, they could give me a right answer. She says, tell me what the word begotten means. Begotten. I said, you know, that is an excellent question. And I sat there and I said, wow, I put a seal to that. I need to dig into that. Begotten. But you see it all over the Bible. Let's look at it just a little bit. Because first, there's a real sense in which Christ was the Son of God from all eternity. Think of this. Now, this is deep. I only can go so far with this. A theologian, Narcy Sproul, could do a much better job for sure. But let me, let me, as a Bible student, just tell you what I, I came up with this. God, Jesus is the Son of God from all eternity past. Because in Acts 13.33, it says, however, the verse is quoted... When that verse is quoted, it is in reference to Christ's incarnation. When He was made flesh. And there's another one. Another reference is that Christ was begotten in the resurrection. Colossians 1.18, the firstborn from the dead. From the dead, He was risen up. So He's the firstborn, the Son of God, in the incarnation, but also the begotten in the resurrection. And there's another one. Finally, some suggest that this day, speaking of here, refers to the future day when Christ will be crowned as king. So notice that. So Christ is begotten, the begotten son, in the sense of eternity past, present, and future. He's all of that. And I'd like to give that the answer and check me with that as a good Berean, but Christ is the eternal Son in the past and present and future. Isn't it glorious? That Jesus is all in all. Well, let's go to verse 8. I'm going to leave it right there because we can go on and on on that wonderful verse. But verse 8 says this, Ask of me, 
and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. Oh, this is wonderful. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. You know, as you look in the Bible and you read the Bible, it was a custom among great kings to give the favored of what they asked, might ask. Esther chapter 5 verse 6 says this, And the king said unto Esther at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition? What is thy petition? Notice what the king is saying. And it shall be granted thee. And what is thy request? Even to the half of the kingdom it shall be performed. The king was asking Esther that. The queen. And therefore, so Jesus our Lord has only to ask and he will have. And in verse 8, he declares to his enemies that they are his inheritance. So he asks of his enemies. Now folks, this is glorious. Who are God's enemies? Have you ever thought of that? Who's God's enemies? Prove that, preacher. Oh, I could prove it. <laughs> and it's not my opinion. It's the Word of God. Romans 5.10. Paul says this. For if when we were enemies... Listen to that. Because we were once all enemies of God. We was enemies against the Holy God. We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Hallelujah. You see what he's saying? By his resurrection. Just not only his substitutionary death was saved, but we're saved by the power of his resurrection. We were enemies. We were enemies. Get that. If you're in Jesus Christ, you're not an enemy now. You're a friend of God. But those that are outside of Jesus Christ are enemies. But Jesus is asking... Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen. He's saying, give me the enemies. Isn't this glorious? Colossians 1, 21, 22. And you that were, were, there he is again. There's that word again. Were, past, sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. By wicked works. Yet now hath He reconciled in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in His sight. We cannot be friends of God and be cleaned up and washed on the inside unless Jesus takes a hold of us and washes us with the regenerating power of His Word. Go with me to Ephesians 2. This is glorious because Paul is speaking of the same, the same thing about being an enemy of God. And in Ephesians 2, let me just read it. And you, verse 1, and you hath he quickened. Now, that translation, hath he quickened, is not in the original. You can read it. And you who were dead in trespasses and sins. But the translators decided to put hath He quickened, made alive in there, but you could read it as you who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world. That's when we were enemies of God, right? According to the course of this world, according to the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. 
among whom also we all had our conversation, that conversation means manner of life, the way you lived, in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. In other words, you're an enemy of God, if you're in that state. And we were at one time. But God, you, I could stop right there and preach. But God, there's a, something happened. God happened, that's what happened. God intervened. His sovereign power intervened and He changed you. He changed me. Isn't it glorious? Why? Because who is rich in mercy for His great love wherewith He loved us? Because He loved us. Even when we were dead in sins, even when we were a dead man, a dead man can't come to the altar and make a decision for Christ. He raises you up. He gives power to raise the dead. Even when you were dead in sins, hath quickened, that means made alive, us together with Christ. And he says, by grace you are saved. And as raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. Isn't that glorious? We're back to Psalm. He's asking of inheritance. What's the inheritance? His enemies. His enemies. I want the enemies, Jesus said. Have you ever heard of a champion dying for his enemies? Well, he did. Psalm 2, 9, verse 9, Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt break them with... Here we see judgment. The rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Beloved, that's serious. That's serious judgment there. I want you to notice twice here in God's Word in verse 9, He says, Thou shalt, thou shalt. It's going to happen. That's supreme authority speaking. That is God's Word speaking of the King, and that is the King of Kings. And interesting to note this, I want, you to, I want to give you something here, a really jewel in the diamond. Three times in the book of Revelation, this, this, this is quoted. Three times in Revelation. Let me, get, let me give it to you. It's glory. Amen, Keith. You go in there. Once concerning, first of all, it concerns and in context of the victorious Christian. And Jesus, Jesus, the risen Christ speaks of this. The glorified Christ speaks of this. Revelation 2, 27. Jesus says this, And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter uh, shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my Father. Jesus speaks of those who are victorious, will rule with a rod of iron. And then notice in Revelation 12, 5, and she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was called up unto God and to His throne. Speaking of Jesus. In Revelation 19. Oh, this is a wonderful text here. Verse 15 speaking again of Jesus Christ, and out of His mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it, with His Word, the Word of His power, with it, He, shall, he should smite the nations, and He shall rule them with a rod of iron. And He treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. 
<laughs> That's the rod of iron. And that is in the hand of the omnipotent Son of the living God who is Jesus Christ. He has that power. All power, Jesus says, given unto me. Now, let me make a comment here about in the original. This is interesting too. As I was doing word study, the shepherd's rod and the king's scepter are the same word in the original. Now, listen to that very carefully. The shepherd's rod and the king's scepter is the same word in the original. In the original Hebrew. The fact that the rod is made of iron indicates the sovereignty and, and harshness of the judgment that will be meted out by him at his return when he comes back in great power and glory with all the holy angels. And he's going to smite the nations down by the word of his power. That's a harsh judgment. But can I tell you this? That the harsh judgment is not inconsistent with the meekness and the gentleness of a great shepherd. There's no inconsistency here. And that, if you remember me telling you about that story of that lady I talked to, she had a problem with that. She thought there was a contradiction with the compassion and the love of God with the holy anger and wrath of God. But there's no inconsistency. Not with God. So meekness does not exclude His holy anger. But simply means that one is angry for the right reason at the, at, at the right time. And an example of this is when you turn to John chapter 2 when Jesus went into the temple to cleanse it. That was a zeal, a holy passion. And he overturned the, ch the changers, the money changers, and he ran them out because he said, my father's house will be a house of prayer. Not a place of merchandising, not a den of thieves where they were marketing the gospel. Don't you see that today in the name of God? Marketing the gospel. All it because in the name of God and for the love of money. God help us. Lord, cleanse the, cleanse the temples again. You see what I'm saying? But there's no contradiction. Jesus is judge and He's Savior. He's, he's King of kings, but just in Scripture, He's a lamb and He's a lion. The same. He's holy love and He's holy wrath. They're not inconsistent. We have a tendency to, to preach more in the love of God than the wrath of God. But you know, Paul, the, Paul, the apostle preached it all. And we need to hear it all because it's all here. Paul even said, behold the goodness and the severity of God. You have God's severity and then you have God's goodness. He's Savior, but He could be judge. It's just, which side of the fence are you on? Are you in the ark? If you're in the ark, you're safe, you're safe against the coming judgment. But if you're outside of the ark, you're going to perish with everybody else. You see, Christ will be one of the two for every soul living on the face of this earth. He will be Savior, or He's going to be the judge to smite them and dash them to pieces. That's what He's saying. Spurgeon says this, And once dashed to pieces, potter's vessels are not restored. Once, it's, once the vessel is made and baked, and once he throws that potter, I mean that, yeah, the, the, the potter, the vessel, it's broken into pieces. Sinners will be ruined and, and hopeless when that judgment comes. And Jesus breaks them. 
And Spurgeon quoted this, You sinners seek His grace, whose wrath you cannot bear. Fly to the shelter of His cross and find salvation there. Well, we come to the application, and this is what really, really gets good. Look at verse 10 through 12. Here we have instruction and invitation. Instruction and invitation. Oh my, this makes me tremble even reading it. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Stop right there. Beloved, let me say, there is no... Let me ask, let me ask this, and you know the answer. Is there any hope for the kingdoms of this world? Well, there is a living hope right now. And it's only in Jesus Christ. It's not religion. It's not going to church or a Bible study. It's in Jesus. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. See, and, and there is a living hope. And Jesus Christ is that hope. When we speak to people about the gospel, it's all about Jesus, is it not? Even though in the gospel we begin with the holiness of God and we take Him... We take them through, hey, you've sinned against the holy God. You, you tell them the bad news. Tell it right. But then you lead them to the cross. And you say, this is what Jesus did. You see, we've got to give the whole gospel. It, it is for that very reason that God has ordained that this psalm, Psalm 2, has been included in this word. It gives hope. And verse 10 through 12 is a glorious hope. There's warning, but there's hope. And the psalmist urges the rulers of this earth, and I would like to say this, not only the rulers of the earth, but all, all of us. <laughs> Amen. Peasants included. And think of this. All of us is included, not only the rulers, and he says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And I love the way it begins. Now, therefore, now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth, even though there's an ultimatum here. There is also an invitation of grace. We see that this in this closing line, as we're looking at the very last portion of it, there is, there's grace that breaks through judgment. There's judgment, but God's grace is there because He says, blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. So He doesn't end with judgment, He ends with grace. You know, how, how does people think about, you know, this? I've even had people, I had one person came to me a long time ago when I was on the bread route, and they said, how could God judge the entire world like He did and destroy all of... She basically was acknowledging that she believed in the great flood, but she was almost saying, how dare God to judge the entire world? And I'm thinking, good night. I almost want to say, well, R.C. Sproul, what's wrong with you people? Well, God is holy. He has a right to do it. They were sinful. And I thought to myself, this lady needs the gospel. Oh, good night, she needed the gospel. And I thought, you know, I, I tell, you know, God has every right to do what He pleases. Amen. Oh, it made me fear just to hear her say that. But you know, here God gives counsel of what to do. Specifically, isn't God good? He doesn't leave us without understanding and knowledge. He gives us the knowledge of the Holy One and tells us specifically about repentance here. And that's what He does. He gives hope through repentance. There's an invitation. Counsel's given. 
to those who have rebelled against the Lord and against His anointing, instead of immediate judgment, which He could have, He could have immediately given judgment and killed them. He said, no, I'm going to give you some space. I'm going to give you some space to repent. In other words, God's patient. And isn't God patient? Look, I don't know about you. I see things going on out there as a human point of view. I think I, I would smite these people. How dare you do this? But God is so patient. And think of millions of people on this earth blaspheming His name. Millions of people cursing and committing adultery in their hearts, not only physically, but in their hearts and their minds. The sins! And beloved, I want to tell you something. God's patience is going to run out one day. These sins that's in this land is going to rise up before God and God's going to come back and He's going to pour out His judgment. There's a judgment. There's a storm coming. There's a fire coming because God is a consuming fire. Oh, but you know, He says be wise. Be wise. Where do we see be wise at? I think of Proverbs 1. Proverbs 1 tells a lot about wisdom, doesn't it? Let me just read a little bit there. You can go with me there. Proverbs 1, I must hurry up because i got to get this application in. Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding. Listen to what he says. To receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, and judgment, and equity. To give subtlety to the simple, to the young man knowledge and discretion. That's advisement, basically. A wise man will hear. A wise man will hear. So if you're wise, if we're wise, we better hear. We will hear. And a man of understanding shall attain unto the wise counsel. So God's given us wise counsel. So if we, the wise man will listen. He will listen to instruction. And if he doesn't, he's a fool. He's on the opposite end. To understand a proverb and an interpretation, the words of the wise, the dark, and their dark sayings. And then he says, verse 7 is the key verse, folks. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And that's the reason why there is no wisdom and no fear among us, because there's no fear of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of it. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Then he goes on to my son, hear the instruction of thy father and forsake not the law of thy mother and they shall be an ornament of grace unto thy head and chains about thy neck. And I'll stop right there, but he's talking about instruction and receiving it. Be instructed. Be wise. Be instructed. Second command is be instructed. I think of the instruction in righteousness. I basically touched on that. It means being warned. Being warned. Hosea 14.9 says, Who is wise? And he shall understand these things. Prudent? And he shall know them. For the ways of the Lord are right. The ways of the Lord are right, and the just shall walk in them. There's obedience to them. But the transgressor shall fall therein. That's the word of the Lord. Now, and then, and I'm telling you, beloved, we do not delay to listen to good reason. Amen? Isaiah 1.18, God speaks. Come now and let us reason together. God is reasonable. Reason together. And you know, who's He talking to in that context? He's talking to religious people that gave lip service and raised up their hands, but their hearts were evil. 
They were all about external, playing church. But God searched the reins of their heart. He's basically saying, oh, you religious hypocrite. That's what he's saying. Come now, let us reason together. Saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And he doesn't stop there. You can read it on if you be willing and obedient. You've got to be willing first. God can make you willing by giving you a new heart. Then obedience follows as a fruit. All in Jesus Christ. Well, look at verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear. Serve the Lord with fear. This is the third command. Reverence and humility, beloved. Mingled with service. Isn't that wonderful? We um, bow in lowly humility because of God's greatness. Like a childlike fear childlike fear mingled with obedience to our Father who is in heaven. And we cry, hallowed be thy name. God, your name is holy. You're to be worshipped. Puritan Thomas, Thomas Watson said this about the fear of God. The fear of God promotes spiritual joy. It is the morning star that ushers in the sunlight of comfort. Walking in the fear of God and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. God mixes joy with fear so that fear may not be slavish. Praise God. You know, you, you have so many verses to that, but my time is running short. Let's go to the fourth command, and this is... It, it keeps getting better and better, doesn't it? Rejoice with trembling. Rejoice with trembling. Holy fear mixed with Christian joy. Spurgeon says here, Holy fear must be always mixed with Christian joy. This is sacred compound, he says, produces a sweet aroma that burn no other on the altar. Fear, this is good, fear without joy is torment. But he says joy without holy fear is presumption. That is so good. You've got to have the balance, don't you? You've got to have the both. You've got to have fear and you've got to have the joy, but you've got to have the joy and the fear. They balance each other out. And, and then he says, notice the solemn argument for reconciliation and obedience. Now let me get to the fifth command. This is really where it gets into worship. Fifth command, verse 12, come. He says this, kiss the son, lest he be angry. That's straight to the point, isn't it? God doesn't beat around the bush. Straight to the, kiss the son. And you know what that literally means? I went to the Hebrew word. This is just so awesome. It means kiss on his feet. That's the Hebrew. Kiss on his feet. In other words, kiss the mighty one. Kiss the son. Kiss on his feet. Worship at his feet. Bow before him. And worship him in the beauty of holiness. The son. The son. The original Hebrew means pure and purity. And the phrase command to kiss in sincerity. In other words, there's other saying in another language like this, but we don't hear it quite. Pay true homage to the Son. Pay true homage to the Son. So why kiss the Son? Why kiss the Son? It's like asking, why worship the Son? You know that answer? Because He's God. Look at who He is. He's God. He's God. Jesus is... Why do you think... Why, why do you think Thomas, after he saw his scars, 
And he said, my Lord and my God. <laughs> he, he kissed the Son. And Jesus didn't hold him back. Anytime worship was given to Jesus, he never held him back. You see, he is God the Son. The Son of the living God. Now Judas kissed him. But oh, beloved, that should make us fear. We're trembling because the kiss that he had was a kiss of betrayal. I'm telling you, that makes, that makes me fear as I say that. I mean that. In other words, we can do the same thing if we're not careful and go apostate. And we can trample underfoot the, the crucified Son of God and crucify Him afresh. At least we be careful, be careful with the kiss of betrayal. We should kiss Him in His feet and love Him and worship Him for who He is. And why, and why? Here's another answer. And I think this is God's answer, really. Why kiss the Son? The answer, really, God says, least He be angry. Think of that. Do you want God angry with you? Oh, <laughs> good night. Beloved, right now in heaven, the, the MacArthur said this, the, the, that war machine, that divine war machine is cranking up. And I'm telling you, when He comes back, no one's going to have a, have a chance. No chances. No more. Mercy will be gone. Well, at least he be angry and you perish in the way. There's that word perish. That's why. At least he be angry and perish in mid-course. Unless he flares up. That's the Hebrew of God's wrath. He flares up in a moment. Derek Kidner says this, this verse... The quick anger may sound like the touchiness of a despot. But the true comparison is with Christ whose wrath, like compassion, blazes up at wrongs which left His contemporaries quite unruffled. The fiery picture is needed alongside that of the one who is slow to anger. End quote. You know, just as the laughter you see of God in verse 4, balances with tears. You see, God is never out of balance. He's consistent with all of His attributes. And all of His attributes under, underlines it with holiness. Uh, it's holy love, grace, righteousness, wrath. Everything about God's holy. Perfect nature. Perfect harmony. Perfect control. Perfect. Now us, we're warm and cool and we get angry over here and we get... Warm over here, and you see what I'm saying? We're all out of balance. Even the Christians. But not God. Perfect harmony. Perfect balance. Perfect justice. That word perish. It made me think, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God doesn't want you to perish. Kiss the Son. At least he'd be angry. God's angry with the, with the uh, heathen every day, with the wicked every day. Jesus took the wrath of God. That holy wrath. Well, it ends with a blessed. Blessed all they that put their trust in Him. Before I close out with that, let me give you a story. Brother Keith sent me this. And it's a story by, given by Stephen Lawson about, he tells a story about the fire of God's judgment on a Perry fire, a Perry fire in Texas, West Texas. 
and many Perry fires that take place in West Texas, Stephen Lawson speaks of this, and a father with a son was out hunting. It's a true story. And they saw a fire coming toward them. And they could not run out, outrun the fire. The fire was catching up with them. They knew if that fire caught them, they would be burned to a crisp. Many people's died like this. Can't outrun the fire. And the father said something very wise to his son. He said, son, stop right here. Stop right here. And the father pulled out a match and he threw it at their feet and started another fire. And the son says, Dad, what are you doing? There's already a fire coming toward Why are you starting another fire? He said, watch. The fire he started moved and charred their surrounding area in a circle where they were. And the father says to the son, as the Perry fire was coming toward him like a wall of fire, like a, a blaze, and probably can feel the heat, it was coming toward them. And he said, son, and after he started that fire and it, it cooled and it charred that area, he said, just stand right there in the circle where the fire's been. I love this. In other words, he said, that fire cannot come where the fire's already been. Isn't that great? That fire that's coming toward you, that's after you, that will burn you to a crisp, you stand where the fire once was, and that fire won't touch you. There's a great truth behind this, beloved. As they stood where that charred place was, and that wall of fire came toward them, that fire did not touch them. It saved them. It saved them. Beloved, can I tell you this? And this is what Lawson said, and I love this. Only one place that we can go to. And that is at the foot of the cross and kiss the sun. To escape the fiery wrath of God that's coming. Because it's coming. We must stand at the foot of the cross. The fire, God is a consuming fire, beloved. It's almost like that fire of God. He's going to come and He's coming in a blaze. And He's going to wipe out all sin. He's going, to, he's going to purify. You know that. And there's a hellfire for people who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. But the fire of God's wrath will come. And it is coming. And we see it coming. But we must stand where the fire was. And where was that? Where Jesus took the fiery embers of God's wrath. You must stand where the fire once was. And if He's there, you're safe against the eternal wrath of God. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Jesus took it all. Amen? So we're to flee from the wrath to come. That's how we flee. And we go to the cross. We fly to the cross. And we kiss the Son. We kiss the Son. We must be found in Him, beloved, on that last day. And the Scripture says this. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish from the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. And then He says, Blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. The question is, have you truly trusted in Jesus Christ? Just not saying you believe in God. A lot of people say that. The devils believe in God and even tremble. But we're talking about trusting Him. That's one thing Satan's not going to do. He's not going to put his trust in God. You put your trust in God. In other words, you 
Throw all your weight on Him and what He did for you. Not of works, not of my, my successes, not of my good deeds, nothing. I just go to Jesus Christ and Him crucifying like the old hymn says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this morning and we thank You for the Word. Lord, it's, it's no man's Word. This is the Word of Almighty God. This is Your Word. And Lord, we receive it as Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that You have sent the Lord Jesus Christ, Your Anointed One, the Lord of from glory, the One who made all things, the Word that was made flesh, and He went to the cross, humbled Himself, and He took the full wrath. He took Your wrath, Lord. That eternal wrath all upon Himself within those three hours. More than a physical suffering, Lord. There was an eternal suffering there that was going on. And Lord, we don't even know. We cannot even... We, we cannot even... The, the, the highest thought we could think of the cross, Lord, does not even come close to the sufferings that the Lord Jesus went through. But Lord, we do praise You for and we thank You, Lord. And help us, Lord, by Your eternal Spirit to truly worship You. And may our worship truly be acceptable in Your sight. To worship You in spirit and truth. But Lord, that's why You saved us, is to make us worshipers. Make us worshipers. So Lord, we love You and we thank You and we praise You for Jesus. And Him alone. And Christ alone. We ask You to be glorified in all things. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen.